All right. Well, we are going to get started in worship this morning, everyone. So if you'd stand with us, that would be wonderful.
You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new to us, we're super excited for you to be here. Um, we would love for you to fill out one of our Connect cards, which is in the pew in front of you, and just uh, put it in the, in the offering in the back. Um, if you open your bulletin, you'll notice that we have um, three distinct values that we have in our mission statement, reach, grow, serve, and there are some options to do those things in there. Um, one of the things that are, is coming up under our grow is uh, women's ministry, our common ground uh, ministry is coming up on October 28th from 6.30 to 8. Um, if you have questions, you can contact Lisa Miller. And speaking of Lisa Miller, uh, I heard that the Millers have a new grandchild. So congrats to them. Um, and then under serve, we're looking for some people who can do coffee fellowship. Um, if you have questions about that, please reach out to um, the church office. And with that... I'm going to ask Sheena to come up. She has a special announcement for an event that's coming up. Hello. As most of you know, our senior pastor, Tim, and his wife, Vanessa, are expecting their fourth baby in January. Um, so before the holidays kick off, we're going to celebrate a baby boy, their first boy, so it's a big deal. I expect to celebrate with lots of love and excitement. Um, so November 13th, we are going to be having a baby shower here at 10 o'clock um, in your program. My phone number and my email are there, so please RSVP to me so I can get enough prizes and games and food for you all. Um, they are not registered anywhere as this is their fourth kid, but like I said, it's their first boy. So that leaves a lot of opportunity for shopping. Um, and if you don't have any gift ideas, contact me. I have some ideas for you. Um, and if you can't get a hold of me for some reason, you can contact Josh as well. Um, thank you. If you have any questions, let me know. Thanks, Sheena. Uh, camouflage, that's all I'm saying. Camouflage. Out with our fourth child on the way. Um, so it's good, good to be here with all of you. Um, would you would you join me in a time of prayer as we prepare to continue worshiping together? Uh, Father, we we come now. We as you pray that you would be at work that whatever is going on in our hearts and our minds this morning, whatever. Is fighting to distract us, whatever is fighting for our attention, that we would just be aware that those words that we just sang are true, that your grace is enough for whatever we're wrestling with this morning, whatever we're tempted to be distracted by, whatever we're worried about. God, that you are sovereign over all of it. You are mighty, you are good, and you are in control and that your grace towards us 
is greater than all those things that fight for our attention and seek to distract us. So God, in this time before us this morning, would we very intentionally set our minds on You? Would we set our heart on bringing You worship and praise? Trusting that You are good. Trusting that all the other cares of the world are slight and small and momentary compared to your grandeur and glory. God, would our worship this morning reflect that we believe that to be true? And would you be honored? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Could you stand with us if you're able as we continue in worship this morning?
Father, we do pray that you love us with a love that continually chases after us, that comes after us, that, that came for us when we were still your enemies, that come for us when we even now flee from you and rebel against you at times. You love us far greater than we deserve, far greater than we can imagine. You are so good to us. You be honored and glorified as we worship you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if I were to like make a list of every possible job someone could have or I could have and like rank them from first to last, being the leader of a country would be like a very far ways down that list. Like I have no desire to to lead a country. The hours are too long, like the pressure is too high, the temptations toward abuse and corruption are too great. I was looking recently at the like approval ratings for all the past presidents. Do you know like no president since Eisenhower has like gotten through their presidency with an approval rating above fifty percent? Like I am far too much of a people pleaser to have like half the country hate me at any given time. Like it's not something I, I desire. Like I would not want to be the leader of a country. That being said, there are a few perks I would enjoy from time to time. Like one of those perks would be that to have the authority to do what Winston Churchill did on August 9th, 1940. Right? This is in the midst of the Battle of Britain as the Germans are bombing London. And during that time, Churchill writes this memo, which is titled simply, Brevity. And that memo starts by saying, to do our work, we all have to read a mass of papers. Nearly all of them are far too long. This wastes time while well, energy has to be spent in looking for the essential points. I ask my colleagues to see to it that their reports are shorter. Right? And we've all, we've all been there, right? Like, we've all sat in a meeting and thought, like, this meeting could be so much shorter. Right? Like, this meeting could have been an email. Like we've read a book and like just wanted to scream at the author, like get to the point. Like in, in like 20 minutes, you're going to be thinking like, I wish his sermons were shorter. <laughs> right? Like we all have this feeling of, I wish people would get to the point faster. I don't feel this as much now, right? but when I was, a, I was a teacher, I had these thoughts like all the time. I'd be sitting in some like all staff meeting or some teacher in service. I'd just be stewing quietly in my head, like brooding over how much time was being wasted. Or I would like sit and I would read some lengthy email from a parent about their child and think like this email could be so much shorter. Like, almost always, in fact, like that email could have just been like two sentences. Like it could have just said. Dear Mr. Byer, my child is perfect. Please act accordingly. <laughs> like, that's like always the email. Like, 
Like, but instead they go on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, like talking about all the virtues of their child and how I must be blind because I gave them a B instead of an A. Or it's always like the children get a B and they deserve it. They think she got an A. That, like, those are the problem parents, right? Like the C students, the D students, like, never, their parents never promised. It's always like the A students who get a B that those are the problem parents. Anyway, like in those moments, like I really wish I had like the authority and the power that Churchill had to issue a decree similar that he issued in that memo of that title, Brevity. But the reason that Churchill could get away with that was that he was a leader of a country at war. And so because of that, he had many like urgent tasks in front of him. And so he needed people to act with urgency, even if it meant sacrificing politeness. In fact, in the final paragraph of that memo, he acknowledges that it's a little bit impolite what he's asking them to do. He says, Reports drawn up on the lines I propose may at first seem rough compared, as compared with the flat surface of the officialese jargon. But then he goes on to say, he gives the reason why, and he says, Writing like this, he says, the saving, in, in writing like this, the saving of time is great. And when there are urgent matters at hand, like there is in the middle of a war, like the saving of time is essential. And we see that kind of same idea play out in today's passage in the book of Luke. The Jesus is going to send out some of his followers. And he's going to command them as they go to go with a great deal of urgency. In fact, to be so urgent that they're not even to greet anyone on the road. Which may seem like a little bit rude to not greet someone on the road. Again, in moving here to Three Lakes from the Twin Cities in Minnesota, like one of the big adjustments for me is like when I'm out on my runs, like in Minnesota, I could be out on a run on the roads and like there's like a point zero 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 one percent chance I would know anyone driving by me in a car. But running here, like, there's like a 30% chance that every car I see, I know the person inside. And so I have to like, be aware and try to wave to people I know. And I'm still bad at it because I feel like kind of just zone out when I'm running. But I feel rude when I realize I miss someone that I know in the car. And there's great people on the road. But Jesus commands them in this passage to not greet anyone on the road. And he does that because... Greetings back then are often these long, elaborate things with all kinds of rules for propriety and all these things. And so Jesus didn't want them to get bogged down in that task. He gave them an urgent task to do, and they couldn't afford to be delayed. We see this all in Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 24 this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn, turn there. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. But before we jump in, let me just say, this is a fairly long passage. There's a lot of stuff in this passage that may pique your curiosity. And we just don't have time this morning to talk about all those things. Like my goal in preaching a sermon is to take what I think is the author's main point in writing the passage and then try to help us understand that main point and apply it to our lives. And sometimes... Focusing on the main point means skipping over some things that are interesting, but that don't quite fit in that main idea. So, for example, today in this passage, Jesus talked about seeing Satan fall from heaven. And we could spend all morning talking about 
what that means and all the implications of that, but we just don't have time for that. And Luke's not really concerned with all those details. Like Luke primarily wants us to know in writing that that Jesus has authority over Satan. That's the main idea. So all that being said, if there's something that we read this morning, something you see in this passage that doesn't get talked about, like I'd be happy to talk, talk about it more during cross training, which is like a sermon discussion time that takes place here after the sermon at 1045. So if you want to come and be part of that, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have that maybe don't get touched on this morning. With all that in mind, let's jump in and read the passage. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserved his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have, not, you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, 
and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So in this passage, it starts with Jesus sending out his followers. And and he sends them out in order to meet both physical and spiritual needs of the people they encounter. So that the Father's will of seeing people entering the kingdom will be accomplished. So that's kind of the main idea here. That Jesus sends out his followers to meet needs so that the Father's will is accomplished. So the first thing we see is that Jesus sends his followers out. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus chooses 72 followers and he sends them out two by two into all the villages that Jesus is going to go. And as he sends them out, he doesn't just send them out as kind of independent contractors. He sends them out as his personal representatives. He says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Like Jesus' followers like, who are sent out here, they, they represented him. They, they speak for him. Maybe the closest modern day example we could draw with this, it's like a, an ambassador for a country. Like, who was sent out by the leader of that country to represent the leader in the country when the leader can't personally be present. Jesus sends these followers out as ambassadors for the kingdom of God, representing him. He he gives them the authority to represent himself. And it's a little interesting, right, that that Luke tells us that Jesus sends 72 of these representatives. That just seems like an oddly specific number. Like, why 72? Well, in Genesis chapter 10, the author of Genesis gives us this account of all the nations that they spread out from Noah and his family following the flood. So he outlines all the nations that grow out of Noah's three sons, and he gives us all the names of all those offspring. And then Genesis chapter 10 concludes by saying, These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So the names listed in Genesis chapter 10 kind of form the basis for all the nations over all the earth. all All the people groups that would eventually cover the earth are represented in Genesis chapter 10. And what's interesting is if you count up all the names in Genesis chapter 10, there's 72 names. So it seems like Jesus here, by sending out 72 followers, is kind of sending a subtle message. That, that his message, his kingdom is for all people groups, for everyone. It's not just for Jews, it's for all people. And at this point, that the message of Jesus for all people had kind of been highlighted throughout Luke's gospel. But as we get closer and closer to the end of Luke, it becomes more and more clear until finally, at the very end of Luke, it's plainly clear when we read, Jesus says, some of his last words in Luke are, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. This idea that the message of Jesus is for all people get clearer and clearer as we go through the book of Luke. And but it's laid out here as well by sending out 72, that it's for all people. 
And one other kind of quick note about Jesus sending out his followers here. Like, nowhere that he sent them out in pairs. Like, and there's certainly all kinds of good reasons why he would do this. But as we kind of think through this passage and what it says for us today about how we do ministry and what we are to do, one of the reasons Jesus sent, sent them out in pairs seems to be that it's just the idea that ministry should never be the kind of lone wolf affair. That ministry should always be done alongside others who are both able to help you in your ministry and keep you accountable. Like you don't have to look very hard or very far to find examples of people in ministry who became like the one dominant voice which took like a, a my way or the highway approach and then had disastrous results. So like, of course, we hear examples in all kinds of big churches of this happening where one person gets too much power and things go terribly wrong. Well, this is not just a big church problem. A prideful individuals who avoid accountability can do just as much harm in small local churches and ministries as they can in, in mega churches. If the scale may be smaller, but the damage is just as real. And each of us... Right, if left to ourselves, run the risk of becoming these self-focused and proud individuals instead of being Jesus-focused and humble. We will never, like this side of heaven, graduate from needing accountability. Especially when it comes to representing Jesus as we do ministry. Few things can do more damage that for someone who claims to represent Jesus, using their position corruptly. And so we need one another. Like we need other people around us to lovingly tell us when we're not representing Jesus well. We need them around us to spur us on and to remind us of two qualities that should mark our mission that we see laid out in this passage. And the first of these is we should have a sense of dependence on God. And Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. So in those words, we see, we see two things. At first, the task that Jesus gives us is bigger, is grander than anything we can accomplish in our own power. He said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need to ask God for more workers because we can't do it all in our own power. And the second thing we see is that the task Jesus gives us is dangerous. He said, go, I'm sending you out like a lambs among wolves. So if this mission Jesus sent his follower down is going to succeed, like they need to be dependent on God both for more workers and for protection. And to drive home that sense of dependence, Jesus tells them that he's going to send them without a purse or without a bag or without sandals. Basically, Jesus is saying, like, don't think you can equip yourselves well enough beforehand to make this job doable in your own power. You can't equip yourself ahead of time and make it all doable. I, I like to 
run a fair amount. And I was watching a documentary recently about like, the quest to break a two-hour marathon. Like, it's never been done in an official marathon, but there's like a couple of guys who are trying to break a two-hour marathon. And like, they're doing all these things to make it possible. And one of the things they do is Nike's developed these new shoes with this something, something special technology that's supposed to help make you a little bit faster. I remember watching them thinking, like, man, if I just had those shoes, like, I'd be so much faster. And, like, of course, they're, like, 300 dollars and like, ridiculous. But, like, if I had those shoes, then I'd be so much faster. But then, like, a while back, I showed up at a race, and, like, my fairly nice shoes and my fairly nice running gear, and I got beat by like a 65-year-old guy in sandals and cargo shorts. <laughs> like, it turned out the equipment doesn't actually matter all that much. Like, I read an article not too long ago about a guy who ran a half marathon way faster than I can, and he did it wearing Crocs. Like, it turned out the equipment doesn't make all the difference. Like, preparation for the task is, like, way more important than any particular equipment that you can have for the task. And in this case, like, the preparation that these 72 need, the preparation in knowing how to depend on God, not anything they can buy or anything they can bring to help them in their own power. They need to be equipped with a dependence on God. The same thing is true for each of us as we seek to represent Jesus in the world today. Ultimately, if we're going to have any success as Jesus' ambassador here and now, like we must be dependent on God. And for me, it can be really easy like, to get a, get a sense of self-importance and to think, like, man, like God, God needs me like, to advance His kingdom. So I better try really hard to represent him well. I better muster up the strength to do my job well. This has kind of been a recurring thing all through my Christian life. And one of the ways it showed itself for a season in my Christian life is through a, a deep interest in apologetics, right? in defending Christianity from arguments against it. And so before I say this, like, I think it's worth noting that I think there's value in Apologetic. There's value in knowing reasons why it's reasonable to believe that the Bible is true. But for a while, I had this like, perception that if I, just, if I just studied all the objections to belief in God and all the objections to Christianity, and if I learned counter-arguments to all those objections, and I learned all the good reasons for believing in God, right, then I could convince lots and lots of people that Jesus was real and deserved their trust. Basically, I could believe, like, if I just had the right arguments, then I could argue people into heaven. And my success and my failure in that endeavor depended on how hard I studied and how hard I was able to work to be able to win those arguments. I thought it all depended on me and my knowledge and my ability. But passages like this one and many, many, many others make it clear that ultimately it is God who brings people to a knowledge of himself. Like we're dependent on God for success in our mission. So Jesus sends out these 72 on this mission with a sense of dependence on God. 
But in addition to that sense of dependence on God, he also sends them out with a sense of urgency. As I said in the introduction, like he tells them in verse 4 not to greet anyone on the road. But they don't have time to get bogged down in these long, formal greetings. Like last week in our passage, Jesus talked about how he's setting his face to go to Jerusalem. He is determined to get to Jerusalem where he would be killed, where he would meet the end of his life. Which means like the finish line for his ministry and his time on earth is, is in sight. The end is near. Which means that any ministry he's going to do while he's here on earth needs to be done soon. That's why he sends out these 72. Like he sends them out to lay the groundwork for his arrival in all these various towns that he's going to visit when he visit eventually. And so see, when he gets to those towns, he must make the best use of the time. And we've all been in that like, situation right, where there's a deadline looming, whether it's a work project or a paper at school or like a health project that needs to be done before winter. And we like, see the deadline getting closer and closer and closer. And like, that deadline getting closer gives us a little extra motivation. Gives us a little extra urge to get done what needs to get done. And that's what's going on here. Like, there is a, a deadline approaching, as it were. Like, Jesus is the end of his life. Like, there's an added sense of urgency that the disciples have. So these 72 followers, they set out with a sense of urgency. But the question is, like, to do what? Like, what is the task that Jesus actually gives them to do? And at the most basic level, Jesus sends these 72 out to meet needs. We see this in verses 8 and 9. He says, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So we see here, like, there, are two, there are two types of needs that Jesus sends out the followers to meet. At first, they are to heal the sick, or more broadly, to meet physical needs. That they set out to represent Jesus. One of the ways the Father had to represent him is by extending his love to other people. All through the first ten chapters of Luke, we've seen Jesus encounter crowds and then show compassion to those crowds by meeting physical needs, whether by feeding them or by healing the sick or by raising the dead. Like Jesus was continually meeting physical needs of the people around him. Right? Now we send out his, his followers to be his ambassadors, his representatives, and he wants them to do the same thing. If they go from town to town, they are to meet physical needs, to heal the sick. But he doesn't want them to stop there. He also tells them that they are to tell the people in those towns that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Which, that's ultimately a message of meeting spiritual needs. The message of the kingdom of God is the message that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. And as such, he has come to usher in God's kingdom. And in that kingdom, like the effects of sin are ultimately undone. And the kingdom isn't 
fully here yet. It's come near. It's not fully here. It'll come fully when Jesus returns a second time. But it has come near. And the message that the 72 carries that you, people who are hearing this message, are invited to come and be part of that kingdom even now, even before its full completion. And the way to become part of that kingdom is by following after King Jesus, the King of that kingdom. By submitting to Jesus as King and by living the life He has called you to live, you become part of that kingdom. And if you become part of that kingdom, then all the things that separated you from God, namely your sins, like those are forgiven and you are welcome into that kingdom for all eternity. And this is a comforting and welcoming message for those who accept it. But for those who reject Jesus, the same message is the, king, the message of warning. In verse 10 we read, When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into his streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. So notice, whether they go to a town and they're accepted or they're rejected, like the message is the same. The kingdom of God has come near. And we say, like, for those who accept Jesus, that's a welcome and encouraging and joyful message. But for those who reject Him, then the fact that the kingdom has come near is a message of warning. There's a day coming when Jesus will return, when He will reign over all the earth for all eternity. And those who have willingly joined His kingdom kingdom, will live forever with Him in eternity with great joy. For, For those who have rejected Jesus as King, it means an eternity of judgment. And so ultimately, like those 72 in this passage, they're sent out to urge people, to invite people, to plead with people, like, accept Jesus as your King. That's the invitation. They're sent to do that. But ultimately, the outcome of that mission doesn't rest on the shoulders of the 72. It's ultimately, it's God's will that will be accomplished. And those 72 just have the joy of being part of what God is doing in the world. In verse 21 we read that Jesus is full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Which, interestingly, is the only place in the entire New Testament where we read that Jesus is full of joy. We see it other places, like he looked full of joy, but there's no place that actually says he is full of joy. And he says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. It was the Father's will that some would hear and have it revealed to them and some would have it hidden from them. That can make us a little uncomfortable. Like, Like, what does it mean that God like, hides some of His truths from the wise and the learned. And there's a lot 
We could say about that. Like we spent several sermons kind of dissecting all this and what it all means. But it's really easy to dwell on the fact that God hides things and miss the incredible truth. That's the second part of that statement. That God reveals these things to some people. We didn't deserve to have any of this revealed to us. We rebelled. We sinned against God. Yet as we sang this morning, like how God's love comes after us. God would have been just to let us wander away. We made that choice. We sinned. We rebelled against Him. He didn't do that. He sends Jesus to come and die for us, to forgive our sins by dying on the cross. And He reveals that truth to us. That's a glorious truth, a glorious picture of God's grace, that He loves us enough to keep coming after us and revealing Himself to us even after we've rejected Him. And that truth that it's ultimately God who does the work in bringing people to Himself is also like freeing for each of us as we tell people about Jesus and the great things He has done, we don't have to have just the right words. We don't have to say things just the right way. And if we mess up a little bit, then it's our fault that someone is condemned to eternal judgment. Thankfully, that's not how it works. It doesn't depend on you and me. But it's God who works. But in His graciousness, He invites us to be a part of what He is doing in the world. He invites us to go out and tell our friends and our neighbors about the good news of who Jesus is. And if we just trust right, that God is greater and wiser than we are, that His ways are ultimately good, that He has a good and perfect plan for how this universe plays out. I'd like to be a little bit hard to grasp how that all plays out, but like we trust that God is God and we are not. And the question that comes from all this then is, like Jesus sent out these 72 followers on this mission, but what does it all mean for us today? Like, we're not rushing to prepare the way for Jesus before His death in Jerusalem. But like we should have a similar sense of urgency in our own task of telling people about Jesus. There's a different kind of deadline looming. We don't know the exact date of this deadline, but every day we live we get closer and closer to that date. That is the day that Jesus returns to earth in glory, when He returns to judge the living and the dead. On that day, on that day everyone who trusted in Jesus will live with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, but everyone who has not trusted in Him will be judged with eternal condemnation. And like I know that that idea is not popular. It's not fun to think about. It's not easy to think about. Because we don't want that eternal fate. We don't want eternal condemnation for anybody especially not our friends, not our co-workers, not our loved ones. But the Bible is pretty plain in 
teaching it. If you don't accept Jesus, then that's your faith. And so we have two choices. We can avoid that truth. We can just try to not dwell on it. Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. And just kind of pretend like the Bible doesn't teach those things. And you can find many people who will join you in believing that. It's not faithful to the Bible. Our other choice is to feel the weight of that coming judgment and then let it motivate us. Let it give us this sense of urgency. Let it compel us to want to tell our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers about Jesus. Let it compel us and plead to plead with our friends and our loved ones to trust in Jesus. But their, their deepest need, a need for a restored relationship with God, can be met. So if you're here this morning and you, you've never trusted Jesus, you haven't trusted in Jesus, like, let me do that for you now. Like, just, like, trust in Him. Like, and if you have questions about why, there's reasons you think you have a hard time believing, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about those things. I know there's hard things in the Bible. But I truly believe that Jesus is real. Jesus really died for our sins. He'd be forgiven. If you haven't trusted in Him, I just urge you, trust in Him. So let's tell us who are here who have trusted in Him already. And like, we, like these 72, have been given a mission. We've been given a task to do. Like we are Jesus' representatives in the world now. He sends us out as His ambassadors. Let us not take that task lightly. Let us not take that for granted. Let us be aware as we live our day-to-day lives that we represent Jesus. Let us be faithful in carrying out the task He has given us. Let us faithfully represent Jesus and the hope He offers to a sinful and fallen and broken world. Let us carry out that task He given us with urgency. And above all, let us carry out that task with a sense of dependence on the God who is at work for His good and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, both in the world and in your word, that we can know you. That even though we have sinned, we have run away from you, we have rejected you, that you did not leave us in our sin that you revealed yourself through your word, you revealed yourself through the living word, Jesus, by coming to earth. So that through his death on the cross, we might be able to be restored to a right relationship with you.
God. We don't deserve any of it. And yet you love us and are gracious to us. And we not take that for granted. Thank you that your good and perfect will involves us receiving eternal life and living forever with you in your glory. Father, would we take seriously the task you have given us to carry that message forward to all the nations of the world. That people, whether near to us here, whether it's our neighbors or co-workers or far across the world, need to hear this message and you have given your people the task of carrying that message forward. Would we not take that lightly? Would we not avoid that task? Would we not just live our lives the way we want to live? Would we live the life you have called us to live, doing the task you have given us to do? And as we do that task, would we find joy, would we find freedom in the fact that it doesn't ultimately depend on us. That our role is to be faithful, but that you are the one who will work. We don't need to be perfect. We don't have to have just the right word. Because you are the almighty God who works through us to accomplish your will. God, would that free us, would that motivate us to live the life you have called us to live for your glory. Praise in Jesus' name. We go from here. Would you go conscious, aware of the fact that you are ambassadors for Jesus. You are his representatives in the world. Would you go with a sense of urgency, a sense of dependence on God to do the task he has given you. You are dismissed.